before getting to the three lessons I want us to share this morning, um, I, I want to take a little bit of time to set the stage for this exact uh, moment in history. I, I kind of want us to enter into the, the moment. So first of all, a little bit about Jericho. Jericho is this town that is uh, pretty uppity. So for years, you might know the story of the walls of Jericho coming down. There was actually hundreds of years that people did nothing with Jericho because they were they kind of saw it as a cursed area since the Lord had brought destruction upon it. But by the time that uh, we are here in history, uh, many people have decided to build there. And Jericho is actually a very uppity town. Uh, it has resources and water that make it a pretty favorable location. And at this stage in history, there were some pretty well-known people that lived there, including Herod. Herod had a second home in Jericho. Uh, you might remember the story of Zacchaeus that climbed up in a tree, um, and Jesus calls out Zacchaeus by name. Uh, Zacchaeus was a man of wealth. He was uh, a kind of a well-to-do character. He also lived in Jericho. And so Jericho was kind of this town where people with a little bit more wealth tended to congregate. And then we have this blind man who is at the edge of the town begging for people to simply give him things. And if, you, if there is a story we could point to where the disparity between the wealthy and the poor really shows up, it's this story. And Jesus is traveling through this town. So kind of have that picture in your mind of the actual location and sort of the atmosphere of the town. Number two, very important to note, Jesus is on his way to die. In fact, if you have uh, like in your Bibles, some of your Bibles give you hints of what's to come. You'll notice in the very next chapter, it says the triumphal entry. So Jesus has started his journey towards Jerusalem. He has told his disciples that he's about to die, that he's going to suffer at the hands of the high priests and the scribes, that, they're, that he's going to have to be lifted up, that the Son of Man is going to be crucified. His disciples don't really understand what they're being told, but it is definitely a very nervous time. There's a lot of tension in the air and we see that as Jesus comes through uh, Jericho, he is exiting Jericho, and there is a great crowd there. This great crowd is made up of people who are curious, people who are interested in what's going on, and it is also made up in large part by those that are trying to find a way to catch Jesus up and to hopefully bring him to his, in their opinion, rightful death. And so you've got, you've got this mob of people that are following Jesus, a lot of tension in the air, people plotting Jesus' death, Jesus' disciples following him, but not really understanding what Jesus is talking about. Why is he going to have to die? It's a pretty tense moment. And you've got this 
town of uppity people that have all kind of, you know, as he started in one area of the town and worked himself through, they've heard Jesus is there, the crowd is growing, there's a lot of curiosity, and it's in that moment that he's exiting the town or near the exit of Jericho that this blind beggar named Bartimaeus cries out. And so, for me, it helps to have a little bit of picture, like to kind of see the event myself and try to put myself into the moment. This morning, what we see here is a remarkable account of how different people respond to Jesus. All of us respond to Jesus, but we respond differently. Everybody on earth responds to Jesus, whether they want to or not. There are those who reject him. There are those who, in their response to Jesus, they just don't think about him and in their mind try to ignore who he is and not think about it. There are those who are vile and who are very hate, you know, hateful towards the Lord Jesus. There are those that are not that way. They honor the Lord with their mouth, but with their lives they are far from Him. And then there is a very small group of people who are sincere followers of Jesus. But when we look at this crowd and we look at this event, we see clearly this picture that the multitudes respond differently to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question for you this morning is how do you respond to Jesus? If you were to be put into this crowd, where would you be? Who would you be? On what side would you fall? This morning I want us to look at this text and learn three lessons from it. Three lessons from the healing of Bartimaeus. Lesson number one this morning, note that the crowd is largely made of pretenders. The crowd is largely made of pretenders. This is a big crowd. And they are near Jesus. They are moving with Him. But they are not true followers. And give it a week, and you're going to find that either all of these people are absent, or if they're not absent, they have changed their tune, and they are literally calling for his death. So this crowd of people who are all moving with Jesus are largely pretenders. Now, I want to say this as cautiously and lovingly as you can possibly say something like this. But it's not much different today. Jesus, especially in American culture, is still cool. In large part. I know he's not as cool as he was in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but still over Half, that's a big chunk, one and a half million people in this country still identify as Christian. The crowds, though, while they are moving, you know, they show up at church this morning. There are people here this morning that showed up for church just like this crowd for the wrong reasons. 
And in large part, the crowd is pretenders. When it's all said and done, when the rubber hits the road, they're there for the wrong reasons. You know, there's a lot of wrong reasons to be part of a good thing. There's a lot of wrong reasons to be part of the church. There are people that come to church and that are part of the God crowd simply because it's just part of their DNA. It's the way they were raised their whole life. We go to church. That's not a great reason to go. There are people that come because family makes them come. Sometimes it's kids that come because mom and dad make them come. Sometimes a husband comes because the wife's super naggy if he doesn't. Sometimes, you know, the wife is coming and might not really want to be there, but the husband's like, this is what we do in this house. Sometimes it's because of friends. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's the social status. Some, sometimes people just want to be part of a group of people. Sometimes it's influence. There, there are people in uh, certain positions, whether it's political or something, there, there are people that are in certain positions that actually take a calculated uh, decision to be part of a church. Sometimes they even choose which church to be a part of based upon how they think it will most help them in their career or whatever they're doing. I mean, there's just there are a lot of wrong reasons to be part of the crowd. There were people that were part of this crowd that were there specifically for the purpose of trying to catch up the Lord Jesus Christ. They were problem makers. And there's a real important lesson here about the crowd. Even the crowd that's walking with Jesus is that most of them are in large part pretenders. Now here's why that matters. So what's that matter? Why would you say that, Joplin? Well, it matters that we understand truth. Otherwise, you'll allow the enemy to get in your mind when you see things happening and you'll think, well, that's not how it should be. You ever had anybody say to you, you know, say to you hey, you know, the, the church is full of hypocrites or the church is this or that or I don't like the church because this person did that or this person did that. Somehow, we, we're, we embrace this crazy idea that the church is supposed to be full of mature believers. It's not. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, follow me for a moment on what the Bible actually teaches about the church. Number one, it teaches that it's going to be full of hypocrites. You know, it teaches us that. That's what it says. Jesus gives this analogy where the workers of a field come to their master mid-harvest, and they say, hey, master, we got bad news. Somewhere when we weren't looking, the enemy came and planted tares amongst the wheat. What do we do? Now, understand that tares look like wheat for a long time. When they start to grow up out of the ground, you cannot tell the difference. It's not until much later towards the harvest that it becomes obvious there is a weed in the wheat. And so Jesus says, well, here's what the worker, here's what the master told the workers to do. Leave them. If you go out there now and you start plucking up the tares out of the ground, you're going to kill the wheat too. Just leave it and then at harvest 
we're going to have to do the hard work of separating out the wheat from the tares. Jesus says this is what the church is like. And in the end, God will separate it all out, folks. He'll take care of it. But Jesus said, without any unmistaking it, that in the church, we will have people who masquerade as Christians that aren't really Christians. So get it out of your mind that the church should only have God-loving, mature Christians that are following the Lord. That's not true. Now, that's just talking about fake Christians. Let's talk about real Christians. You know, the Bible teaches you that you must be born again. And from that moment forward, in all of the New Testament, the idea of equating the human experience of growth to the spiritual experience of growth It's used frequently. Paul talks about babies in the faith. He talks about being mature in the faith. We see this idea that we should be growing up in the faith. In fact, Paul says this at one point in time. He says, while you should be mature, you should be eating meat, spiritually speaking. You should be teaching others by this time in your life. He says, you're still drinking milk. And you still need to be cared for as if you were babies. So we see that in the life of a true believer, there are stages. You've got the baby. You know what babies need? They need a lot of care. They need someone else to protect them. They, basically, they need somebody to full-time disciple them. That's what babies need. You're going to find when you really examine the story of the prodigal son... There is such a thing as a spiritual teenager. You know what a spiritual teenager is? It's someone who thinks they know everything, but they don't. It's someone who thinks they've learned enough, they've heard enough preaching, they've heard enough of this, they know enough scripture that they don't really need to listen anymore to their spiritual leaders. They've got it all figured out. And just like the prodigal son, all they really want is the blessings of the faith. And they're going to go live their own life. And then it's not until, often, not always, but often, it's not until they've gone, they've squandered themselves spiritually, and they come to their senses in the pig pen, and they think it's time to get back to the father's house. That's a stage of faith that some people go through. And then you have mature Christians whose role is to be discipling and teaching other Christians. So putting the tares, the the false Christians, off to the side, do you realize that even in the church itself, we should have, especially if we have mature believers winning the lost, we should have babies in the faith, we should have children in the faith, we should have teenagers in the faith, and hopefully we should have a handful of mature believers who are helping care for and lead the flock. Now, you take that fact, and guess what, folks? You're going to see a church that has people that are, at times, a mess. So wherever we got this idea that the church is supposed to be full of people that are all serve Jesus perfectly, it's just nonsense. And you've got to understand something about the crowd is that in large part, the crowd is pretenders. One of the very important lessons here, and I preached on it last week, we cannot 
live our faith with our eyes on the crowd. You have got to keep your eyes on Jesus. And we have to remember, by the way, that God, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We don't actually know people's hearts. You and I don't have the ability to come and assess, you're a wheat, you're a tear, you're a wheat, you're a tear. We can't do that. That's, that's an inner reality that only God knows. Our job is to ultimately give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And if we see somebody who professes to be a believer, struggling in their faith, struggling with strongholds, struggling with sin, we who are mature, I think it's Ephesians chapter 6, we who are, or Galatians chapter 6, but we who are mature need to come alongside those believers and help lift them up in their time of weakness. But understand, the crowd generally is full of pretenders. And this matters because if you are going to get where you want to get with God, you're going to have to understand that there's going to come a time and place you've got to have to dig deep and decide you're going to do it on your own. You are going to find God. You're going to seek God. You're going to get real with God regardless of what happens with everybody else. Number two, you'll always have to fight the crowd to get to Jesus. Bartimaeus wanted to come to Jesus, but the crowd was hushing him down. You will find that the crowd will always hush your desire to go very far with God. You know, this is true sometimes even of good people. I remember when I was, very, when I was first saved, um, like I got saved when I was 20 years old. And when I was 21, 22, 23, I had developed some, uh, some good friendships. Uh, I had a handful of people that were solid Christians who loved God. But I will never forget the frequency of times that if I wanted to go deeper with God, I wanted to pursue God more. The things that I was hungry for and thirsty for and I remember just being shocked that my friends did not have the same desire. And I felt like the odd man out. And my friends had been Christians their whole lives. Good Christians. People called into ministry, actively serving in their churches. But I, there, there was times I realized, it, uh, you can't look at the crowd. You cannot expect all of your friends to have the same hunger for God that you have. And you've got to get past the we mentality. In other words, you can't look around when it comes to serving God to your friends, your peers, the church, and say, what are we going to do? Are we going to go further? Are we going to grow deeper? Are we going to pursue God? You've got to get past the we mentality where it doesn't matter what everybody else does. You've got to get it settled in your heart and in your mind. You're going to go further. You're going to go deeper. You're going to seek God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. You're going to do what it takes to get to Him. And it does. It, if you want to come with me, great. 
You want to go with me? Awesome. But if not, I'm getting to Jesus anyways. This is not a we decision. I've made up my mind and my heart that I'm all in with God, and I'm going to get to him no matter what. When I look at Bartimaeus, I am uh, encouraged. You might even use the word motivated when I realize all the things he did not let him let stop him from seeking Jesus. You know, he was blind. No doubt he felt like a burden at times. No doubt he dealt with embarrassment. But notice that his infirmity, it did not keep him from hearing. He heard that the Lord Jesus was coming. I love it that, you know, a lot of times when we have weaknesses, when we have infirmities, we are wounded maybe in a certain area of our life. But God's capable of using the other senses we do have to lead us to Him. There were people who were deaf, but that had seen what Jesus had done. There were those that were blind, but had heard what Jesus had done. God has a way of touching that part in us that is still sensitive to who He is. I find it fascinating the number of times that I'll preach a message and, and maybe in the next week or the cup, you know, within the few weeks that follow, sometimes three or four different people will talk to me about what God spoke to them and how God ministered to them, and it's always different. And that's how God works. God has a way of speaking to you directly right where you're at. And this man refused to let his infirmity, the part of him that was broken, the part of him that wasn't working, the part of him that was shameful, he refused to let that keep him from God. And I pray this morning that maybe somebody that you felt like, well, hey, I can't get to God. God doesn't want anything to do with me. I'm a burden. I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit will help you see you are not a burden to God. And you have got to get past that. You've got to realize God loves you just like you are. And you've got to be willing to let your heart open up and say, God, this area of my life might be broken, but I'm willing to give you whatever you're willing to take. I'm willing to get to you any way that I can. This blind man did not allow his infirmity to keep him from hearing. Spiritually, he heard what he needed to hear. As a blind man, no doubt he had heard a lot, including the negativity, including the whispers of those talking and plotting Jesus' death. But this blind man heard what everyone else was failing to hear. He heard that this man heals all that get to him. And he thought, if I can just get to Jesus. He heard that it had been reported that there was nobody that Jesus had ever turned away if he could just get to him. He heard that Jesus had the power to walk upon waves and thought to himself, if that man could walk on water, he can heal my blindness. He heard that Jesus had healed a boy by simply speaking a word and thought, if I can just get him to acknowledge me. He heard that Jesus can do what nobody else can. That Jesus has compassion on the hurting. 
What I hear this morning is that Jesus loves you. That Jesus loves me. That Jesus wants to help. That I matter to Him. That you matter to Him. Not only did His infirmity not keep Him from hearing, it did not keep Him from believing either. Bartimaeus had spent most of his life feeling like a burden. Some people had made him feel that way on purpose. Others not on purpose. But Bartimaeus couldn't be helped by man. And he could have begun to see himself that way as unwanted. But we see he had hope. There was something in his heart. He knew that if he could get to Jesus, Jesus would heal him. He had heard of all that Jesus had done. And then he began to have hope in what he had heard. I am not a burden. God loves me. God will rescue me. God is my provider. God is my healer. It's never too late for God. His infirmity did not keep him from persevering. I find it interesting that one of the things we're told about Bartimaeus, it's, it's really the, uh, the detail, the detail that really sticks out to me. We're told that he, he cried out all the louder. Now, the writer, in recounting this event... That was one of the things that stuck out to him so much that later when he went and recorded this event, he made sure he added that detail. It makes me wonder how much louder Bartimaeus actually shouted. That the writer was like, we've got to get this in here. This must be noted. And I want you to get the picture of a persevering man that knew his moment was there and nothing was going to stop him. Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road so that he's not trampled. He's got his cloak on. He's just there hoping people will give him money. And all that he can do is hear. And he hears that Jesus is coming through town. And at this exact moment, the crowd is getting closer, it's getting larger, it's getting louder, and he has to guess at what moment Jesus is closest. He's blind, he doesn't know. But he's, his hearing is telling him, now's my chance. And so he just gives it a shot. And he cries out loud, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Wondering if Jesus is close enough to hear. And he doesn't hear Jesus speak, but here's what he does hear. Hush. He wants nothing to do with you. Hush. Be quiet. And in that moment, here's what he knew. He's close. He's close. That, that, that was the cue for him where he knew he's close. And he shouted loud enough that it was recorded for us. He shouted all the louder. My guess is he screamed at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Son of David, 
Have mercy on me. And we see that he was willing to persevere through it all. It didn't matter what the crowd thought. It didn't matter what anybody thought. It didn't matter who hushed him. He was going to get to Jesus. This was his moment. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, there's a certain tenacity about us if we're going to get to God at the important times of our life where you're going to have to get to, you don't care what the crowd thinks. You don't care what people think. You don't care what the folks in your row think. You know the Holy Spirit is dealing with your heart and nothing else matters and you're going to do whatever it takes to get to God. This was the persevering attitude of Bartimaeus. And some of the most beautiful words ever penned in the Scriptures follow. And Jesus stopped. I want you, as much as possible, I want you to visualize that event with me. You get all the uppities to do. All the great people of prestige and power of the town kind of coming to this spectacle of Jesus. You've got a small group of followers and his disciples that are still with him, but they're It's a nervous time right now. Nervous energy in the air. Jesus has set his face, the Bible says, like a flint. To get to Jerusalem. To get to the cross. To die for you and me. His hour had come. He's not moved by the crowds. He hasn't stopped for the crowds. He's taught everything he needs to teach. He's not going to stop there in Jericho and get up on some rock and teach the crowds. He's moving. He's He's getting somewhere. Off to the side, this blind beggar begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He screams it loudly when he is told that Jesus is near. And Jesus stops. I don't know. I just, I don't know how to express how awesome that is to me. But of everybody in that town Jesus would stop for, it was the blind beggar. You know, the things that are important to God are very different than the things that are important to you and I. The things that move the heart of God are very different than the things that typically move the crowd. The things that God sees and listens to are typically very different than the things the crowd sees and listens to. I thought about in my own life how I, at, at one point in my life, I felt like this man. I felt like Bartimaeus. Unlike Bartimaeus, my undoing was my own fault. I was the victim of my own choices. But nonetheless, I was a beggar. I was worthless. I felt unimportant to the world. Certainly unimportant to God. But I will never forget the day that I was saved. And for this beggar, it sure felt like the whole world stopped and God put his focus right on me and just dealt with me.
in this exact moment, Bartimaeus went from being the nobody on the side of the road to the single most important person in the story. We are sitting here talking about him 2,000 years later still. That's what happens when God turns and stops for you. You become important. I become important. Bartimaeus becomes important. Not because of anything Bartimaeus did. Not because of anything I've done. Not because of anything you've done. But because the God of heaven and earth loves you. That makes you matter. Because the God of heaven and earth stops to care for Bartimaeus. To call him out. To say, bring him to me. In that moment, Bartimaeus went from being the nobody of the story to the single most important person in it. It's amazing to me at times in my life, and I know I am not the only person who's ever felt this way, but at times in my life, I have felt like I'm God's favorite son. He has a way of making us all feel that way. And I know I'm not the only one. But I'm telling you, I have felt that way. God just has a way of doing that. Where he stops. And he provides care and focus and love. And I realize that the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, pays attention to me. He listens to me. He sees me. And he loves me. That makes me feel special, folks. I want us to finish looking at Jesus. I'll say one last thing about Bartimaeus. His persistence to get to Jesus won, or half-hearted indifference would have failed. If you're ever going to really get to the Lord... You're going to get where you want to be with God. There's going to come a time and place you've got to settle your mind and your heart. You're going to do it. And you're going to do it all by yourself if you have to. I actually want to say one more thing before I get to my third point. I think it's important. I want to say that sometimes this aloneness of seeking God despite the crowd... Sometimes it's actually the hand of God in your life. And I want to give a couple examples. I want to point to, first of all, that example that I shared with my friends uh, in my early 20s. You know, it's very possible that in that stage of my life, that God intentionally made sure that where I was going wasn't the exact same place my friends were. And it wasn't that there was anything wrong with them is that God was testing me to see, Joplin, am I enough? Are you willing to seek me when it seems as if nobody else wants to go that far? And I think sometimes God has this way of bringing us to this place where we feel like the only one in the crowd. Maybe we are the only one in the crowd, but maybe we're not. I think you'll find that at times with your close friends, at times even with your husband or your wife, your parents, your kids, your, your family, you will find that there are times 
that God himself is actually the architect of that moment. And what he's doing is something in your life to really get you to stop and meditate and think on this. Am I all in for God or not? Am I only willing to go further if he goes or she goes? So I want to caution you against being judgy when there are people in your life that don't want to go as far as you want to go. And recognize that very possibly it's God himself that's the architect of that moment to simply get you back to the place where nothing matters but him. And he is first and foremost above it all. Let's move this morning and look at Jesus in the crowd. The third lesson that I see from our text is that through the crowd, Jesus hears the voice of every true seeker. Isn't it fascinating that in the midst of all that chaos, Jesus still heard the voice of the one man that really wanted help? It's awesome. I, I wish, I had told this to the 9 o'clock congregation, I wish we would have had like a, you know, a, a ring doorbell on the front of somebody's little cottage where we could have watched this event. It was a great crowd. You've got the noise of people walking. You've got the noise of people talking. You've got the tension of it all. You have Jesus with full knowledge. He's getting ready to enter the last week of his life. Where would your mind be if you knew for an absolute fact that you were going to die on Friday? Where would your mind be right now? I mean, you knew for a fact Friday you're going to die. Not only are you going to die, it's going to be awful. You're going to be beaten nearly to death publicly. And you're going to be hung to be, to be crucified publicly in front of everybody. It's coming on Friday. Where would your mind be? That's what Jesus is dealing with. He's got his disciples that don't understand him. They're even arguing about who gets to be the greatest still. You've got this massive crowd, and there's one voice that stands out amongst it all that makes Jesus come to a complete stop. I'm telling you folks that God still hears the voice of true seekers. I pray the Holy Spirit will help you see this morning. If you feel like you're insignificant and you don't matter to God, nothing can be further from the truth. Jesus was never impressed with the crowds. It's one of the things that we get so wrong in church. We have become, in this modern era of fake followers and numbers, we, we've become, um, uh, I don't know the word for it, motivated. Uh, we think it's a big deal when there's big crowds. Jesus was never impressed with the crowds. But you'll find that the one true, sincere person willing to call out in faith, that stopped the show for Jesus. You ever feel like with all that's going on, why would God care about me? You ever feel like with all the 
chaos in the world and everything else happening. How could God possibly care about your need? (laughs) Nothing could be further from the truth. God does care. What God wants is you and I to come out of the crowd, to come to Him personally, individually, and seek Him with our whole heart. Hebrews 4 teaches us that we can now go boldly to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. There's probably not a whole lot of pictures where you will see that picture better than right here. You talk about being bold. A man screaming at the top of his lungs to get through all the noise of the crowd. Calling out to Jesus. I look at this story and I call it the day that the Savior stood still. This morning, if you're here and you're saved and you know it, can I encourage you to take some time to meditate on the day that the Savior stood still for you? Like, I mean, when he stopped and changed your life, are you still blown away by that? I literally, not every time, but quite, quite frequently, when I think about the moment God saved me and stood still and changed my life, it's been 23 years, but it still, it still breaks me most of the time. If you're saved this morning, I want you to think about the day that Jesus stood still for you. And he heard your cry. And he answered your prayer. And he met your need. And he saved your life. This morning if you're here. And the Holy Spirit's dealing with your heart. Maybe you've never truly come to Jesus. Maybe you've never truly turned to him. When I talked about all the wrong reasons people are part of the crowd, something resonated with you and you're like, that's me. I'm just, I'm, I'm here. I'm near Jesus, but I don't know Jesus. This morning, I plead with you. Get to him. If the Holy Spirit's dealing with your heart, now is the time to come. I'm going to conclude with this. Isn't it interesting that in this moment, it was a blind man who recognized the king. Everybody else still trying to figure out who he is. Even the disciples confused about what's going on. A blind man of all people recognizes the king. I can't say that I know exactly why, but it seems as if for some reason, it's often those who have suffered the most, who most easily recognize the Savior. It could be perhaps they've come to the realization faster, man cannot help you. That what you need is a Savior. That the help that you need is divine. 
that what you need to happen in your life, there's not any man that can do, your pastor can't do it for you, your mom can't do it, your dad can't do it, your husband can't do it, your wife can't do it, doctors can't do it. You need God to touch your life. I think sometimes it's these people that are in that condition that are quicker to come to that conclusion. I think sometimes it's that their pride has already been destroyed. I am confident in a room this size, there are people here this morning, that God's dealt with your heart. There's something that God wants to do in your life today. And you want to respond, you want to go further, you want to go deeper. Confident of that. But pride will keep you in your seat. You want to be healed, you just don't want anybody to know you need healed. You want things to get better. You just don't want anybody to know they need to get better. We all got our best on. So rather than respond when the Holy Spirit's moving, instead we're going to pretend there's no real need to respond and then think that somehow later you're going to go get real with God. I think sometimes it's the blind man, it's the deaf man, it's the leper. Who knows that he's blind? Who knows that he's deaf? Who knows that he's a leper? And everybody else does too, so there ain't hiding anything. Sometimes it's that crumbling of the pride that allows the blind man to see what everybody else can. I don't know if that's why, but I know this. This morning of God dealing with your heart, you need to respond accordingly. I know this, that our God still hears the cry of every true seeker. I know this, that when we know that we're near Him and He's near us, that's the time to respond. This morning, if you've been discouraged, I pray that you would allow hope to arise in your heart. To know that God loves you. God sees you. God hears you. 